0: talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't
1: never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always
2: more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to a very special episode of Lab Talk with Laura. I'm joined live in the studio today by Adrian Lamb and Raquel Bryant, both from the Geoscience Department. Yeah!
3: Live show, live show.
2: And so yeah, today we're going to be doing something a little bit differently. Normally, I have a pre-recorded show, and I interview some people, and I bring a comedian on. Raquel is uh, subbing in as a comedian today. Um, people tell me I'm funny. She's a scientist and a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, about a month ago, there was a special event on campus organized by some graduate students. That was a public outreach and um, communication summit. Engagement, Laura. Engagement. Oh, uh, I totally missed it. Stay engaged. Um, kind of organized to talk about the different ways that people in academia reach out and get their research out to the community. And obviously I went because I host the radio show, as you may know, on uh, 91.1 FM, WMU-A Amherst. Can you tell I'm nervous? Around. Yeah,
1: you can I'm tell. nervous too. It's okay. So I'm not talking. Hi, Adrian.
2: <laughs> hey. So um, the story is that I did some mini interviews at that um, event. Minterviews. Minterviews, yeah, yeah. Um, we had a really cool p- uh, panel of experts about outreach and engagement, and I have an interview with one of them. I have an interview with one of the people who organized the summit. Um, but then I also wanted to bring you guys into the studio to talk about the ways that you engage in outreach and education because you do some really cool things. So, Adrian. And Adrian was there. And Adrian was there. I wasn't you there. You weren't there. I was there. <laughs> A lot of people were there. Um, so, Adrian has a website called Time Scavengers. Um, so, maybe you want to talk about Time Scavengers a little bit?
1: Sure, yeah. So, um, me and my friend, Jen Bauer, she's a... Well, she just got her PhD. She's Dr. Dr. Bauer Dr. Jen! Now. She's listening live. Thanks, Jen. Dr. Jen! Um, so, about... Gosh, it was a year and a half ago now, we had this idea to do an education outreach website. Um Cause we were pretty annoyed with how people responded to science and climate change after the 2016 election so we figured okay let's make climate change the science behind climate change and evolution more accessible to the general public through easy to read pages and easy to look at easy to digest information um, in the form of simple charts and figures Why'd
3: you choose like climate change and paleo, though, Adrian? Like everybody's on the same page about those
1: topics. What do you mean? Well, Raquel, actually they're not. Uh, unfortunately. So um, Jen and I are from the South. I'm from the South, so Virginia. Um, Jen is in Tennessee right now, of course. And that part of the United States is actually pretty um, I don't want to say famous, but <laughs> they have a lot of strong views when it comes to climate change and evolution. So there's actually a lot of people. Um, that want to see evolution eradicated from the public education system or have intelligent design and, or basically the same thing, um, alternative theories to evolution taught. So, like creationism alongside evolution in the classroom. So, that's not cool. Um, and there's a lot of people in the South that actually, and all over the United States, I shouldn't just pick on the South, it's all over, that just don't believe in climate change or they don't think that it's caused by humans. So we wanted to create a space, this online or website, where we actually talk about the theory of evolution and why it, what is a theory, first of all, uh, why it's a theory, and the science behind climate change and how we know that humans are causing climate change today and since the Industrial Revolution. So that's kind of the motivation behind the website. And currently, the site, if you want to check it out, it's called timescavengers.blog. Um, We have about 30, 35 static pages right now, and we have six blog components on the website. And those static pages are like
3: really great teaching tools. Yeah, all my teacher friends. Yeah, yeah, all my teacher friends. Or anybody
2: who's really wondering about the details of where does the data that supports this information come from, because that's like right. You want Thanksgiving dinner
1: prep. Go to this (laughs) website. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Yeah, we've tried to make it as easy to read and digest as um, possible. But we also have a team of nine collaborators. I think it's nine now. Yeah, that help us write our blog. So like Raquel is one of our site collaborators. And all of our collaborators are from different walks of life. Um, They're all a really diverse group of people. So they either identify as POC, uh, first generation. They're from like different backgrounds, the LBGTQ plus community, Um, some are parents. So we all have these really different perspectives on science. And we just want to be there and show to students, teachers, kids, whoever—that anyone can be a scientist. But the other purpose of our blogs is also to just kind of show people what we do in our everyday lives as scientists. Not all geoscientists play with rocks. That's right. But some of them mm-hmm. do. We don't play with rocks. Raquel and I don't <laughs> play with rocks. Uh, we play with mud and fossils. Yeah. Well, mud. okay. Raquel plays with rocks a little bit. <laughs> I've seen you guys
2: playing with rocks. I don't know hey, you're Laura. All right, Laura. <laughs> don't blow okay, up our <laughs>
1: Every now and
2: then. <laughs> I don't know. You, you could get into like what is even a rock? Like, how do
3: you what even decide what a rock, a rock is, rock? right? That's anyway. philosophical. Do we do that <laughs> on laptop with Laura? We can yeah, get that's philosophical, deep. yeah. What makes something a rock? <laughs>
1: Wait, I think we, do we define that on Time Scavengers? I'm not sure if we actually define what a rock is. Uh oh, new page coming out. Sediments. <laughs> there we go. What um, is it? What did you call elicified elicified it? sediment. So yeah. sediment that has been, you know, compressed. So is ice a rock? Time. I think it actually is considered a mineral. Right? Mm.
2: But, is that a rock? but isn't a rock is a just aggregate of mineral? Rock, yeah, it's a glacier a rock? Because that's like lithified ice, kind of. Oh, gosh. Lithified snow. Told it's you. complicated. Philosophy. These it are, ba- like, difficult boundaries. Or, like, I'm used to living out here where all the rocks are, like, really old and hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then I've gone out to California where there's, like lots of that's just cranking out rocks you know because <laughs> yeah, the uh, because there's like active tectonics and you you know there's rocks you can go up to them they make up cliffs but you can go up and like scratch them away with your hand you know mm-hmm. and you're like is this a
1: rock i don't know wow yeah there's it's just... like pseudo rock those are really young we have some of those in the east coast too well hmm, it's kind of compressed sediment it's on its way to becoming a rock um Keep but going. Sorry. Keep Sorry, working took on it. That a
2: weird. <laughs> we didn't need to dive into like exactly where these the are, boundaries. See, are. See, like
1: kids, yeah. if
3: you're interested, this is why you should become a geoscientist. You can solve these great <laughs> mysteries. like? What is like, a rock? What is a
2: rock? <laughs> is a rock? <laughs> or deeper questions
3: <laughs>
4: like
2: why is a rock? <laughs> what? Oh my gosh. This and more information available on (laughs) timescatch. Yes, please. No, but you have really, I really love, you really have a very accessible site that's both very informative for like, it gives, like advanced science yeah. but it also really breaks it down in an easy to digest way and like doesn't presume any knowledge going into it so you can exactly you know you break down like here's how to read a figure here's mm-hmm. what to look at on each axis like everything so it's
1: really great yeah thank you yeah that's what we try to do and we have pages specifically set up uh for people that know nothing about science and want to know more for example what is a hypothesis what is hypothesis testing what's the difference between a hypothesis and theory when we say precision and accuracy in science, what does that mean? Um, so we go kind of into that, not in great detail, but we give readers enough background, we hope, to understand that. Um, and we're always looking for feedback. So if there's anybody out there that's looking at the site and- Hates it. You, well, hopefully nobody <laughs> hates it. But if you do hate it and you have suggestions, sure. Uh, we have a contact page. Where you can send us more information. Especially, We're really interested with connecting with teachers as well. Uh, we have an entire page set up for educational resources right now we're not making our own education um, materials for like use in the classroom but we have tried to call a bunch of materials that were already online and put them in one place that are related to like our oceans and atmospheres and climate change and evolution and the fossil record
3: yeah I just remember being a little kid and being like really nerdy and stumbling upon pages and being obsessed and like reading every single link and I just feel like if i saw time scavengers when i was that weirdo kid like i would have spent 12 (laughs) hours on the page that's why i love it because like you can really see like all the access points like laura was saying Mm -hmm. for everybody just wants to learn something about the earth or learn something about science
1: or learn something about scientists it's all right there yeah and we have this cool one of my favorite blogs is called meet the Scientist, and every other week we feature a new geoscientist and they're not always geoscientists we'd really like to branch out and get more scientists to contribute that, to that page. But we showcase, oh, let me think, people that are, you know, further along in their career that are teaching at a university, so professors. Um, but we also feature master's and PhD students that are doing really awesome research. So we want to we want people to see what we do as geoscientists. But um,
2: Yeah, and like you said, different. showing all the different faces of what it means to be a scientist exactly. and who can be a scientist and kind of changing this perception that there's, like, one way to be a scientist. Like, you can be a parent, you can be... Have a first-generation scientist, yeah, like right. a lot, that is kind of a problem in the sciences. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people who become scientists have parents that are scientists. But right. Like you're a first generation. Yeah. I'm first generation too. Are you first generation or not?
3: Um, you're I half. Like, oh, have no, like half first generation. I don't know if that's a thing. You can't I don't us, no. claim it, but yeah. yeah. So well, yeah. just the idea just... of like, if your dad or mom was a professor, like the idea of education is not new. The idea mm-hmm. of getting a PhD mm-hmm. is not new. Yeah, but and it, there's a
2: lot that's just familiar to
3: you. Right, right, yeah. Even just the idea of academia, the idea of asking questions and being able to answer them, that's not something every little kid thinks they're going to grow up and be able to
1: do. So right. Yeah, exactly.
2: Okay, I'd like to jump into uh, one of the recordings of the interviews that I did at Them the Outreach yeah. Yeah. the Interviews. Let's to <laughs> yeah. um, so this first interview that I'm going to play is with Dr. Alexandra Jones, who is the founder and executive director of Archaeology in the Community, a Washington DC-based nonprofit that brings archaeology to a wider audience of people of all ages through educational programming and community events. So let's check that interview yeah. out. Okay. <laughs> Cool, so you came up from DC to do this panel. Um, And so maybe could you just talk about um, the organization you started? It's Archaeology in the Community.
0: Yes. Archaeology and Community is an um, archaeology education um, company. It's a nonprofit. Um, we have three programmatic tiers. So, um, the bulk of our programs are done around uh, youth education program. Um, so, this is doing programs for schools, um, clubs, outreach. We have then our professional development arm, which is internships, and then In partnership with Mount Pillar, we do a classroom teacher training where we train teachers how to teach archaeology. And then our last component is our community archaeology. This encompasses our festival. This um, looks at programs that we do geared more towards adult populations. So we have happy hours, um, um, happy hour workshops. we have dig videos, programs, um, a blog, so things kind of gear, you know just geared towards um, an older crowd that are also interested in archaeology.
2: <laughs> and so you said you have an archaeology site in the Virgin Islands. Yes.
0: So in partnership with the Society of Black Archaeologists, they started the project um, last year and they invited other archaeologists to come in and partner with them and the idea is to have a project that's truly collaborative and even on the leadership side, which is unusual when you see sites, researchers tend to kind of hoard the fame and this is a truly collaborative um, project where they brought in archaeologists who specialize in different areas who have certain strengths and we handle different aspects of the project while all working together and um, making decisions um, about what's going on in our research. So I handle the youth and public outreach section of our project. So I deal with um, anything around our field school, um, working with the um, Caribbean Boys and Girls um, Club in the, um, in St. Croix specifically. Um, Working with the kids, the project isn't just a one-year project, it is a sustainable project. So this being our second year, I'm hiring back the students that we trained last year in order to get them summer jobs, but also to kind of do continuing education with them. Um, so we don't just stop with one year. We kind of keep going um, over and over with our kids in order to kind of track them, but also make sure that our program is having an impact and we just aren't doing something for the sick of doing it.
2: Right, right. And so what kind of things are you
0: looking into in this site? Um, it is the Estate Lone Princess Archaeological Site. So it was a um, sugar plantation there. They had a rum distillery. One of the things that makes the site truly unique is that it has um, one of the only still standing kind of hospitals Uh on a plantation on an island. And it is currently run and managed by the Nature Conservancy there. So uniquely,
2: we have a partnership with them as well while we're doing our work on their property. Okay. Have you had... um, So have any of the kids found anything really exciting or like... That you would have to ask them. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs>
0: um, it's very interesting because there's a lot of diagnostic stuff that goes into it. Okay. Um, so definitely, I thought it was cute. A few weeks back, I met with my old students just to have dinner with them and kind of see, okay, have you thought about archaeology? Do you still remember things I taught you? Um, And just to kind of hear them talking about, yeah, I know, I remember learning about the different types of nails and I never knew that we had so much glass on this island and kind of like the funny things that kids take from Mm -hmm. um, excavating a site versus what we think about when we're excavating in a site um, makes it kind of interesting and unique. Yeah.
2: So what originally drew you to archaeology? I hate being inside. (laughs) Yeah, okay, I can relate. I'm a geologist. I don't know a lot about archaeology, but I get the wanting to be outside.
0: Yeah, so um, for me, it was the idea that I'm the first person in a 100 to a 1,000 years to touch something since it's been placed in the ground or left by somebody, that excitement of discovering people whose stories haven't been told, the excitement of giving power and giving voice and giving recognition to people who have historically been forgotten by the record, Um, whether it's women, whether it's children, whether it's people of different ethnic or religious backgrounds. Um, For me, that was what was truly exciting. And the fact that I could do it without sitting in a caged-in room in in a nine-to-five, made it extremely attractive. And I mean, I've never looked back.
2: Have you, um, so have you worked in lots of different areas? Like, do you have a favorite field site that you've worked on or? So my specialization um, is the Spanish and um, English speaking Caribbean
0: and the Chesapeake region. So my dissertation site was done in Maryland. Um, I initially started my research at looking at religious patterns in Cuba. Um, And uh, currently now I'm in the Dutch Caribbean, Um, so. (laughs) I've kind of moved back and forth. I think what my true passion, even though those were my research interests, my passion is people. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I've been able to marry and bring together people of all different backgrounds from all different places and to be able to travel and expose them to archaeology in ways they never thought about it is what excites me and truly, I guess, keeps me engaged in what I do. So I don't really have a special, I just love people. Um, did you say that diving is part of the archaeology site? So we are training the students, we're in partnership with Diving with a Purpose. Okay. Um, so the St. project has about 15, when I say we're a community archaeology project, we have like 15 or so programmatic partners, finance partners, so um, we work with, funded by the Slave Wrecks project, the Smithsonian. Um, mm-hmm. It's the Society of Black Archaeologists Project. They've collaborated with Diving with a Purpose, who's collaborated with Junior Sciences. Um, We work with the Boys and Girls Club there. Um, Yeah, there's multiple community partners, and we've all come together with this shared idea and understanding of exposing kids to... Archaeology, underwater archaeology, and kind of spreading this. So the initial idea is to have the kids learn how to dive, with the hope that at one point um, they'll either engage in looking at wrecks or engage in coral restoration.
2: Oh, nice. Um, is there anything else about the program that, like, we didn't touch on that you'd like to bring up
0: no, or your awesome. research? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it sounds great. How long have you been
0: doing it? Uh, the Sanctuary Project has been going on for two years. Okay. Archaeology and the community has been around for nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, and AITC, like I said, does everything in just about every aspect. Um, we are a true anomaly and a true public archaeology um, nonprofit. I mean, and, and we take you know mm-hmm. community archaeology and public engagement very serious to the point where we assist others in trying to come up with that uh, creative ideas around that. And we are the only um, archaeo- um, archaeology nonprofit education organization um, of its type that exists. There are other public outreach, but they either specialize in one region,
5: mm-hmm. um,
0: meaning that they have a site associated with or they are um, kind of a lesson plan programming, outreach program, whereas we actually do everything. So we have it all encompassing that. We do have a a site that we work with kind of in conjunction on one side. We have a teacher training, Um, we work with kids, we have blogs, we have video programs, Um, we have a photography project. So we kind of have a number of things in our hands and multiple things truly trying to come to the people and bring archaeology to the people in ways that haven't been done before.
2: Yes. Okay. Well, so I have one last thing. Um, So on my show, so I host this STEM radio show, I bring in people to talk about their research at UMass. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of the show, we always play a game, and I bring in a comedian as a co-host.
5: Okay.
2: And so at the end of the show, we always play a game called Guess That Acronym, because I'm kind of like trying to highlight the fact that science has its own language, and it can be kind of alienating. And so the game is supposed to be like educational and mm-hmm. like people, I have my guest give given an acronym and then the comedian guesses what it means. But I'm wondering, do you have any acronyms that are common in your field? And I'm going to switch it up and I'm going to try to guess what it is. And you know that's fine too. SHIPO. SHIPO. Shippo. Shippo. So, so S-H-I-P-P-O. S-H-P-O. S-H-P-O, okay. S H P O. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to go with students helping plan organizations. Not even close. Not even close. Okay, so what does it actually mean? State Historic Preservation Officer. Okay, so is that somebody... In every state? Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that everybody doesn't realize is every state in the United States has a state historic preservation officer. And their job is to make sure that their state is in compliance with um, all of the archaeology laws and rules. Wow. And that you are not allowed to do anything um, archaeological <laughs> on state Federal land without their approval on them Okay, wow, I had on. no idea. That's really so, cool. I
2: need to go find out who my Shippo is. There you go. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah it's, it's, it sounds like a dumb game, but then it actually ends up starting all these really good conversations. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, so thanks so much for your time. It's no, really nice you. to meet you. Laura, never
3: say, guess that acronym is dumb. It's the best game.
2: <laughs> I'm glad that you approve, Raquel. I
3: definitely approve.
2: <laughs> no, but actually, I'm always, I don't know, I always feel like it sounds silly. I'm like, yeah, just guess what these letters stand for. But then it starts all these good dialogues. Yeah. It's a great idea. So, yeah, that was Dr. Alexandra Jones of Archaeology in the Community. She was really awesome to talk to. She she was a really great panelist at that event.
1: Yeah, um, Adrian, you had some things to Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So first of all, she was incredible. I was totally blown away when I was listening to everything that she did. I was blown away by how she could do it all. Um, But Laura and I were just talking about this while the interview was going on. She went. I think the panelists we asked them questions, and one of the questions was, "What is your advice for people that want to do science communication and outreach work?" And there was a lot of answers, and one was, I think one of them was that it took a lot of time, and that's true. Laura and I both work hours after, you know, after dark, after we leave our labs. <laughs> Late at night. Yes, working on our <laughs> outreach projects. Um, but the other thing she said was, really love what you do. And I've, we've heard that growing up, as Laura just said a minute ago. Like, we've heard adults tell us this since we were little kids. You know, find something you're passionate about and that you love to do and follow your dreams. And I think that's kind of what, that's so true. That really hit home for me. Yeah. Um,
2: You're going to have to work a lot no matter what. That's (laughs) true. Work on something you enjoy doing. And I think it makes
3: science a little less like dreary and drab when you can infuse it with different types of people. Mm -hmm. I think we talk a lot about what it really means to be inclusive in science and sometimes, unfortunately, if you want to find people that are like you you have to do outreach or science communications right like you meet a different group of people who are interested in science for different reasons and I think as a scientist it can be just as fulfilling as your scientific work and they can work together and it can feel even better
2: and it can remind you what you love about your own science yeah talk to new people Mm -hmm. about it too so i want to say um since we're doing a special live airing today people can call into the show which is exciting so if you want to call in and chat with us uh the number is 413-545-3691 uh, so just uh, hit, us, hit up. us up when we're not talking because we won't answer then. But you yeah. can just hit us up. It'll ring and ring and ring and we'll answer when we can. Yeah, we got we you. We want to talk to you. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to queue up my uh, next interview, which is with Dr. Barbara Zura Pearson, who is a research associate in the Language Acquisition Research Center in the Linguistics Department here. Wow. And I just ran into her at this event and she was kind enough to, to just do an interview with me on the spot. So cool. let's check it out. Um, okay, so can you just introduce yourself and tell me yeah. like who you are in the context of your research?
4: Yeah, so my name is Barbara Zurer Pearson, and I'm a linguist. I'll, I study child language mostly, okay. and I've uh, over the last 30 or 40 years I've been studying uh, language acquisition in bilingual children. Okay, but I collaborate. With people who do first language acquisition, as well as bilingual acquisition, and so in the last um, last few years, I've been doing a project on how children learn quantifiers. Okay. And these are words like every and each and okay. some, and actually even just number, newer mm-hmm. numer- one or two. Or- well, expressions. In sentences okay like two children found four caterpillars okay or and finding and how children learn these sort of implicit characteristics I don't know if you've ever heard of distributivity so like if I have um, every flower is in a vase and I show you a few pictures this is my experiment this is part, part of with... one of my experiments okay I show you a few pictures and in one In one picture, there are three vases and three flowers in one vase and Mm -hmm. two empty vases. And then in another one, there's three vases and one flower in each vase. Okay. So if I say every flower is in a vase, is one better than the other for that? Or are Uh, they both? What
2: does that mean?
4: Well, and then the question... So and then later on in in the survey questionnaire, we ask each flower is in a vase. And when I do this with... English speakers and English adults, they have a big difference between every and each. Uh, That every can go in either direction pretty easily. Each can also, but there's a strong preference for it to be a distributor.
2: Uh, that when you have that
4: each, what that's telling the speaker is that well, one-to-one, mm-hmm. right? So I did this with children and found out that uh, it was quite late that they didn't know the difference between every and each, oh, or okay. that particular yeah. difference between every and each. And I wanted to do it with bilingual children, but I felt... If I do it with bilingual children, I'll never know if it's their degree of bilingualism mm. or whether it's just because they're kids. So what I did was I have about 400 people from around the world who did an online survey taking a number of the different experiments that we did over the years in in my colleague's lag, Tom, Roker, Tom Roper. And we I did it with people who speak English. So it was done in English, but I have 50 Fifty people whose first language is Spanish, okay. and who learned their arithmetic in Spanish—that's the hmm. criterion for me. They learned okay. their early arithmetic in Spanish, Spanish, Mandarin, Russian, Hebrew, and Hungarian. Apparently, Hungarian is special for this kind of stuff. Oh, okay, <laughs> I'm learning about it still. Okay, <laughs> <Right? yeah. laughs> But anyway, so what I what I'm finding is that these are things that are conventionalized in different languages and there are sort of preferences but there's not a it's not a grammatical rule okay. it has to be like that this yeah that. but there are patterns and so I have almost 200 English speakers of all ages from all over the country and in and Britain and I have their pattern of how many prefer the distribute, you know, how many just won't accept it if it's not distributed and how many. And, um, and then I compare like the relationship of every and each across the different language groups. Okay. So Russian and he, uh, Russian and, um, Russian is pretty much like English. So each
2: language has a word for both of those that well, are separate? no,
4: oh, actually. Okay. <laughs> so, in fact, every is a very unusual word. Oh, really? Most language, I mean, almost every language has each and all. Okay. Okay? And so Hebrew is one of those languages. Mm-hmm. Well, the Hebrew speakers, each and every, they were just, both of them were always distributed. I mean, almost oh. 94%. Yeah. So mm. then we go back. If i were really a theoretical linguist which i'm not okay okay, i would know what it is about the language that i could predict would make a difference Uh. but i'm doing it backwards (laughs) (laughs) i'm finding where the differences are Uh and then going back to find out what it is in the language Uh that predisposes them to do it one way or another okay and sometimes it's just a pragmatic it's just a part of the way their culture is organized yeah but for some time for some cases and in fact in this Hebrew one there's a grammatical story for why they well first of all one is that they don't have um, they don't have a word for every okay. so they just lom it onto each but even each can be either collective or um, mm. or distributive depending on the number of the verb. Whether it's a plural or a, su- or a sing or a singular verb, mm. so if it's a singular verb, they don't entertain that it could be collective mm. or mostly. I mean, yeah. I mean. Sometimes they're contaminated by knowing English. But <laughs> really well. But okay. but but a lot of people who live in English, have been living in English for a long time, they retain a lot of these things because they're very they're implicit. It's not anything you know about.
2: Right. It's not even something you've talked about ever. or ever learned. Right. But you or just even know what about. that difference is. Right. Interesting.
4: So that's one of the projects that I'm still working on even though I retired.
2: <laughs> <laughs> still working even though you retired. Cool. Okay. That's nice. Um, if you have just some One more moment. So at the end of my shows, I play a game where I have my guests provide acronyms from their field. Uh. And I have my comedian co-hosts guess with the acronyms. So now I'm doing it. I'm putting myself in the hot seat. Uh. I don't know if there are any acronyms from your field that you might be able to give me that I should guess. How
4: about MLU?
2: MLU. Multiple Language Understanders. (laughs) 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 I think I maybe (laughs) one. Knee-length of utterance. Mean length of utterance. Okay, so that's how long somebody spends saying like, a word, or well,
4: no. Um, when you're looking at children learning language, okay, you want to, you know, it's a big thing for them to get their first word. Okay. but it's a really big thing for them to get their second word. Oh, okay. You know, to get two words, not their second word, but to get yeah. two word, two word utterances together. Okay, and because once you have two words, then you have to have a system for putting them together, uh-huh. which is what grammar is. Okay, so you can have you can speak all the words you want. And you don't really need to know grammar. But once you start putting words together, mm-hmm. two, three words, you've got to have a system. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the huge fascination for okay. linguists. Yeah. But um, when kids are learning, one of the measures sort of is, well, how often does he have a long, you know, like an MLU of 1.6 means that, you know, half of the time he might have another. He might have two-word utterances, but okay. he's mostly is that still the average
2: word. number of words strung together?
4: Yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. So that means he's mostly in the one-word stage. Yeah, yeah, but, but there's he has occasionally some, yeah. some longer ones. And when ones. they get up to, it, it's only really interesting up till about four or five.
2: Okay, and then they're experts. And then, <laughs> and then, <they>
4: just <laughs> go. then you cannot. I don't know up. what mine is. I think it would
2: be like thirty or forty. Oh, yes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> we don't really do that. Okay, okay. not but for But what, what, with you, what we look at is we look at C units. Okay. Okay. Which are, hmm, I don't remember what the C is. It started out <laughs> as a T unit, but this it means a clausal unit. Okay. So it's like the independent, it's how many independent clauses you have uh-huh. that are strung together.
2: Okay. With whatever they have. Before um, I let somebody else say something.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a mean, that's an MLT. Oh, okay. That's mean length of turn. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> okay. Nice. So there are people that Sweet. study
4: discourse, too. <laughs> we hit a lot of
2: acronyms. There. nice.
4: We wouldn't be scientists if we didn't have acronyms, <laughs> right?
2: Great. Yeah, okay. no, that's yeah. That's why I created the game. I think it actually like starts it. Like conversations. It. Very
4: good. Cool. Thanks so much. Well, well thank you.
5: Yeah.
2: Okay, yeah, that was my interview with Dr. Barbara Zur Pearson from the Language Acquisition Research Center in the Linguistics Department here at UMass. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. It was so cool to
3: hear about, you know, bilingual kids and stuff. Not that I was one. My mother actually denied me of that.
2: Yeah, it's Intentionally, rude. Intentionally? She didn't want you to? Well,
3: so my grandparents moved here in the 60s from Peru, and my mom did not speak any English until she went to school. They, like, first forced her to learn. She actually got, like, locked outside of her house with her parents not home, and, like, the police came, and she couldn't talk to them. And then they were, like, yelling yeah. at my grandparents because she didn't speak English, you know? Um, So she didn't learn until she went to school but she struggled and she didn't want us to feel like that. Like you didn't fit in because you spoke something else. So we didn't really practice Spanish in the house. And then when I got older and I was in school and you had the opportunity to learn Spanish, I was really into it. And so I like kind of treated it like every other subject and studied Mm -hmm. really hard and made sure like I got good grades. then in college though like you want to be a scientist and you're not really like practicing but recently i've been so proud to be able to find ways to practice my spanish and realizing that it's actually really important to think about what language we use for science because Mm -hmm. so much is blocked off because like the top journals are english speaking and you have to be able to write and read in english to like participate in a big Chunk of science and Mm -hmm. uh, pro tip. There's actually a lot of science written in other languages, Spanish, Italian, Chinese, that like adds to the richness of our fields, and we're missing out because we're only speaking one language. Yeah, don't you have a? Is it a geoscience Spanish dictionary or? Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. I have my little pocket dictionary I bring around because I think about every time I see something like what that word might be in another language and now I can figure out what it is at least in Spanish and it's just cool to think about how um when we think about besides communication if we're only communicating in English who else are we leaving out especially somewhere like Western Mass
1: and now that we have more like immigrants coming into the country and people here well people that have been here for a while and don't speak English as a first language I think it's really important that we're able to communicate different languages. Yeah, millions of people who live in the U.S. speak
3: Spanish as their first language. And when I think about science or even like weather updates, things Mm -hmm. like that, we
2: should really think about who we can reach depending on what language we're speaking.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Okay, I want to jump into our next interview, which is with Mercedes Harris, a master's student in the Environmental Conservation Department here at UMass. Okay, so... Do
5: you want to just tell me who you are and what department you're in? Yes. Uh, Hi, my name is Mercedes Harris. I am a part of the Environmental Conservation Department, pursuing a master's degree, and I'm studying garlic mustard phytochemistry. So the plant chemistry um, in garlic mustard is what my project is focusing on and how that may change due to uh, plant density of garlic mustard.
2: Okay. Okay, so can you tell me, like, what was... The experience of doing your research like what what were you actually doing
5: yeah so um, the whole question I guess with garlic mustard phytochemistry um, and density as a topic came about because of visually just seeing in the field garlic mustard commonly well I'll say what garlic mustard is so garlic mustard yeah. is a herbaceous plant which is native to Europe and Asia Um, and it was introduced like North America for culinary purposes back in the 1800s, but since then it has expanded its range across the U.S. and uh, Canada, and it's become an invasive, well it is an invasive species, Okay. and a lot has to do with its chemical properties, and so my project is looking at how the chemical properties may change due to the number of plants, so plant competition Okay. Because garlic mustard tends to grow at uh, high densities. Okay. Um, and so my project, I was assessing within different fields, different uh, forest sites, how that chemistry may be variable if it is an issue. Because not a lot of people has assessed, you know, the above ground chemistry. Okay. Um, but with my research, I found that it is variable, but it is minimal to its toxicity is mi- minimal basically so it's a it's a concern but it's not that that major okay like, it's toxicity it's to the plants around it or it's toxicity to like butterflies and oh, herbivores. okay um,
2: to the animals that might animals be that okay may, so that you know, was one of the concerns about it being invasive so yeah there's multiple concerns it it pushes out other plants
5: yeah so it has like a lot of uh, competitive techniques um that's kind of based around its its chemistry. So below-ground chemistry kind of breaks bonds that native trees need to, like, regenerate. Okay. And so garlic mustard, the chemistry in that will, again, just break those bonds. And then those forests, secondary forests, uh, the, the forests aren't able to regenerate. Okay. Or those tree species, native tree species aren't able to regenerate because garlic mustard is so good at what it does. So aggressive. And then above-ground, it is causing population um, decreases in the native butterfly species, the hmm. Paridae, um, okay. a part of the Paridae family. And so this is particularly out in Western Mass. It's In Western Mass, the density of garlic mustard is much higher than here, and this butterfly population um, is also greater in Western Mass as well. And so what garlic mustard is doing it's basically tricking this butterfly species to land on its leaves. And um make a snack out of the garlic mustard leaves and, and lay eggs on the leaves as well. But the toxicity in garlic mustard, it's causing those butterfly species to not develop. Oh. And so garlic mustard, that chemistry is kind of similar to the p- butterfly's native chemistry. Okay. And so it's sending off like the same the same signal. It's kind of confusing oh, the butterfly okay. species. And so, so they would
2: normally be landing on a different plant that is more like sustainable to them?
5: Yeah. So. Uh, The plant that garlic mustard is similar to, they're both in the same family. They're both in the same broccoli family, uh, brassicaceae. But garlic mustard has this one chemical compound that makes it different, and it's the compound that I was studying, a glucosinolate called sinigrin. And so that compound is what is kind of hurting the butterfly species. It's causing them to, to, you know, essentially not develop. And so with my project, I wanted to see how this... Chemistry in the leaves may change due to due to habitat differences, mm. due to light, due to the diversity of plants around it. Okay. Just to see um, if there are any management implications based on like the visual, okay. you know, densities of garlic mustard. Are they more toxic? Okay, so you than can like, be like where do we really need itself. to go and get it? Exactly. Yeah. So that, that was the whole thought process behind the project itself. And from, from that, we're finding that populations, as far as um, looking at um, habitat differences, populations of garlic mustard stems in the light, that kind of upregulates this compound. So as opposed to populations that are in the shade or inside okay, the forest. So it's worse in the light? So it is slightly worse in the oh, light. Okay, so, so that's kind of no rect- good
2: news, right?
5: Because yeah, it's like, easier to spot. Yeah, it's not
2: not really good news, I guess. It's good news but.
5: for us to know kind mm-hmm. of where you know where we w- where you, we would expect to see um, you know greater toxicity okay. in the populations in the light versus populations in the shade or the interior yeah. of the forest. And so, from from a management point, um, based on based on your forest characteristics. Um, where those populations of garlic mustard are placed, you can go in and have that thought process and basically have your plan on how you'll you'll tackle through management first. Yeah, what was the butterfly that it's affected again? So the butterfly is commonly named mustard white, a part of the Pyridae family. Okay. Pyrus virginiana is the uh, scientific name, but mustard white butterfly is is the butterfly species being affected by uh, invasive garlic mustard. Mm.
2: So what got you interested in this project? Are you interested in invasive species
5: more, or butterflies, or like... On, well, what drew me in first, I, I'm, I'm interested in plant chemistry altogether, so the, okay. the techniques that plants use in their chemistry. Okay. And most, most oftentimes, um, this technique can be used very well by invasive species, so that's how mm. my interest in invasive species came about, because... They use these techniques very well. Okay, that's um, why they're invasive. That like, that's, yeah, which kind of helps them become, you know, invasive yeah. and very, very um, very good at what they're doing, basically. But the um, interested in butterflies as well with that. Um, but being that plants are our primary producers, as far as trophic levels are concerned, when you're starting at the bottom of plants, uh, there can be, you know, ripple effects up to, you know, mammals and, and other mm-hmm. things that... Um, you know, I still care about, that we care about people as well as far as food sources. So I'm um, looking at, you know, the bottom level of the trophic um, is um, nice. basically of interest invasive species too.
2: Cool. Is there a favorite place that your research took you to? Um,
5: were you mostly in Massachusetts or? Mm, well, not to say that Massachusetts is dull. I'm not from, <laughs> I'm not from here and I actually okay. like Massachusetts a okay. lot. Like the, uh, the mountain is... Um, terrain but basically i was local um was here in amherst as well as long meadow okay. and you know northampton it was basically yeah. local okay. i did get to go to uh, out to the berkshires as well to to um mm-hmm. to look and see or just survey the garlic mustard populations as far as visual um densities okay so, cool
2: yeah. is there anything else about your research you want to talk about that didn't come up
5: um well, I guess the application of the garlic mustard phytochemistry and just brassicas all together, um, techniques that I was using in this research as far as um, analyzing the secondary compounds, this technique is commonly used for basically to, for people to actually go in and, it was called high performance liquid chromatography, and that um, is what we used in order to assess sinigrin um, concentration. But this technique, is also used in a lot of brassica species, and the research right now that's kind of hot with plant phytochemistry is oh. the effect of these glucosinolates, the compound that I was studying, on uh, cancer prevention. As far as including it in the human diet, so oh, there's really? a lot of yeah. Oh, wow. when, I, when I was looking for just you know the phytochemistry information on garlic mustard, oh. I just kept getting sidetracked on the human health of it because oh, wow. there's so much going on about like glucosinolates and decreasing cancer rates. Now really? being that this project isn't like you know, human health, public health, you know, I didn't really go that far right. into looking at it, but that was like a cool a side connection. note that I learned from from this, uh, as far as these, toxi- these toxins that garlic mustard are producing, and other broccoli species that may be toxic to, you know, the butterflies or the deer, uh, for human beings is actually <laughs> not so. as, it is beneficial, yeah, okay, so folks... Yeah, folks are saying well why don't we just eat up all the garlic mustard but it's not that simple when it's Mm -hmm. like growing on the side of the roads and pollution and stuff like that yeah you can't just eat it that's not really the solution for managing it but um i just found that was another side track that direction that i wasn't really looking into for this project but it's just a fun fact did it make it
2: harder to do your research because you kept finding all this stuff about cancer and you're like this isn't what i'm looking Um, at or was it not? You could filter it, that it, out um,
5: easily. I was able to filter it out, but it, it gave a lot of good information on, like, the synthesis of these compounds and, like, uh-huh. the complexity of it. So looking at, looking at you know, different ecology papers, they didn't go into that much detail. But when I went into the, the medical field of how these mm. compounds are, you know, synthesized and broken down but it's very detail oriented so oh, that kind of awesome. helped so me it's understand actually it being, like interdisciplinary a little bit with yeah, yeah it Research. helped me understand it and I wasn't expecting that but it was it was good that's really cool so, eat your broccoli everybody basically okay, you know, those, nice. those compounds are good but um with garlic mustard um vital chemistry there's there's much there's much more to you know to learn from it cool so you're graduating I am spring 2018 I will be graduating do you know what's next work I'm looking yeah I'm looking okay. I'm applying to jobs to going you know, into industry is okay doing cool. now in conservation yeah. in conservation yeah and plant or botany nice. as well botany work
2: cool um okay so one more thing so in my show I normally play this game called guess that acronym and I get my guests to provide an acronym and then I make my comedian co-host guess what the acronyms mean and they don't have any context, and it's really mean. But so for these mini interviews, I was thinking I would be the one in the hot seat, and I would ask you to give me an acronym that's common in your field, and I'll try to oh. guess it. If you don't have any, that's fine. But I, I kind of just said I, one.
5: Did you? Uh, did you? Do you were you I listening I a little earlier? Maybe <laughs> was it's I not, listening? I might have forgotten I don't it all. Yeah, it was. Um, so uh, the technique that we use for shorthand, we just call it HPLC. <laughs> okay, HPLC. Wait, I think I
2: might. Hi. No wait. hi. Oh, I'm getting a visual cue that that's the right thing. <laughs> hi It was like chromatography was the C. Yeah. HPLC. Hi people love chromatography
5: <laughs> that's what it, um. They might.
2: High hi, performance. Liquid yeah. chromatography. What was it? You got it. Ding, did you? Was that, ding, ding, that ding, really it? That
5: was it. Oh It was nice. like subliminal. You heard it. Okay. You heard it. Yeah. You no, I, you just did great so okay. listener. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to listen. So I it. wasn't no, tuning up. <laughs> I don't have any other acronyms that I can really even okay. think of that we even really use. Yeah, so it's interesting.
2: Some fields I think they're heavier on it than others, but yeah. it, it is something that even just like journals, people will use acronyms or whatever. But
5: cool. Yeah, I don't have many that I know of. Nice. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. Awesome. Thank you, Laura.
2: That was Mercedes Harris, a master's student in the Environmental Conservation Department. I'm pretty sure she graduated, so congratulations, Mercedes. Good luck in the future. Um, The last interview I'm going to bring to you guys is one of the people who organized the uh, outreach summit. Uh, His name is Rick Friedman, and he's a Ph.D. student in computer science.
6: My name is Rick Friedman. I'm a PhD candidate here at University of Massachusetts Amherst in the College of Information and Computer Sciences.
2: Cool. So could you just tell me about what kind of research you do?
6: Uh, Sure. So my research is at the intersection of artificial intelligence and human computer and robot interaction, where the idea is we're trying to develop, I think the best way to put it is adaptive responsive interaction um, between machines and people.
2: Okay. wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, is there a specific
6: machine that you're looking at, or...? Right, so you're right. A lot of people do focus on that. There's actually a lot of people at MIT who are working on things like factory robots to interact with people, and there's actually been a lot of work, like with your smartphones. I mean, Siri's an example of a machine that interacts with a person as well. Yeah. And I think the best way to describe what I've been doing is looking at more of a general purpose one. So all these people are working on the special cases where there's a lot of great information you could take from the fact that you're doing a certain scenario, but... I was looking at just the general idea of what if you don't know the scenario in and you want to just have interaction. What are the principles that are involved and what interactions between even different methods within artificial intelligence are necessary to create these interactive experiences.
2: Okay, so kind of how do you translate the very different ways that humans and computers process information or is that is that part of
6: it or? Um, that can be part of it for sure, okay. yeah. So I'd say the best way to explain what we're doing is if you think about whenever you're watching two people do things, a lot of time you'll notice that there's usually a back and forth, and that's because, while one person is doing things, the other one is sort of perceiving what's going on, mm-hmm. and is using that to update how they decide to respond next.
2: Okay. And
6: you sort of notice that whenever they're responding and they're making those actions, the other person is now doing some perception, and that perception updates what they do. And so really, in the end, it's sort of trying to understand what others are doing and how that influences your decision-making process. Okay.
2: So what does that look like like on a daily basis for you? Like, what are you doing mm-hmm.
6: right. so, when um, you come into
2: the lab? Or, right, like, yeah. so uh, this is
6: the part where um, most people are expecting something amazing, like you would walk in and see flying robots uh, and all these yeah. things. But uh, the truth is, especially when you work on the artificial intelligence side, a lot of times you come into a place where you have a computer and a whiteboard, mm-hmm. um, maybe some books. And the idea is you're going through and you're playing with uh, mathematical equations on the whiteboard and reading re- relevant literature on these techniques and you sort of are looking at how they can intersect and you're playing with the math on the whiteboard and when you think you've got an equation that might work, that's when you start to write up the code and get it ready to try out, in which case you might do a simple test on the computer with just like typing through the keyboard and if you want to do put on a robot, then there's a little more coding involved and then uh, many preparations later, you can start bringing some people to try stuff out with the robot once you know that it's going to work decently and safely because there's a lot of cost involved, both in money to run the robot, making sure it doesn't break and also in wanting it to be a safe interaction with the people.
2: Okay, yeah, I guess safety is pretty important. It's very yeah.
6: important, yeah. So
2: what what techniques are you working on?
6: Yep, that's a wonderful question. Like these,
2: what what are these equations describing?
6: Right. So I'd say um the biggest thing like I said is we're combining multiple areas of artificial intelligence. Okay. And so there's many different sets of equations and we're seeing how they sort of work together. So I think the simplest one to start with is our lab specialty, which is decision making. Okay. And there's actually quite a bit of this that comes from game theory and economics, for example. Um, sort of this idea of if you make this move in the game, what move should I make next? And, uh-huh. and we've been able to work with extracts of this. So you can think about um, the simple version that I use is imagining that everything you do has certain requirements on a list. Like if you want to pick up a pen, you have to be near enough to the pen to pick it up. The pen has to be within reach. The pen has to be on the table and not in someone else's hand, otherwise it might be rude to rip it out of their hand. And if these things are true, then you can actually perform the action, and then that changes the way the status is. Like now the pen is in your hand, it's no longer on the table. Okay. Um, you know for sure the pen's in reach, but maybe you moved away from something else in the process. Okay. And you can actually use this to do decision-making by seeing how, what actions do you need to take to change the status so that other things can be done. Okay. Yep, And then the perception part sort of is right now looking at a lot of statistical approaches to say, based on certain things I know that are true, what else can I deduce as true and how likely would other things work? Okay. So in this sense like if I see you take certain actions, how likely is it that that set of sequence of actions is going to lead to a certain decision you make in the end? Because hmm. okay. that might tell me then what decisions I should make to make sure that the right things are satisfied for you to do your later steps.
2: Okay, so you're working in a more theoretical framework than an applied one, or... Right, so... I, maybe I misunderstood nope, it. Nope,
6: you're, you're absolutely right. Right now it's been very theoretical, okay. but we are working on making physical applications of it to show the concept does work. Okay. So right now we're working with video games, and we do plan to work with robots. I've been talking to the robotics lab a little bit. We're not sure how soon that will be, though, because there's a lot of work between a video game that's all virtualized and making it work on the real robot itself, oh, but... Okay. We are planning to generalize it to there soon, and right now we have video game characters that are recognizing basic tasks you do within the game and are trying to assist you in accomplishing those tasks in the game.
2: Okay, so you're working on creating artificial characters that help you play a game? That's right. What game is it? Is it a specific game, or is it...
6: I mean, right now it's a very simple um, virtual environment sort of thing, so um, right now just imagine trying to stack a bunch of blocks, and so you have a bunch of blocks, and we tell you, okay, you're going to build this one with your little claw, and then the claw tries to build them, and then... Once it can recognize what word you might be trying to spell, the other clause can come in and try to help you spell out the same word, for oh, okay. example. OK, interesting, nice. Yeah, and so it's using these very theoretical ideas we had. And so like I said before, people have studied how to take advantage of the theory and work in a much more specific sense. And so we're just, so we're starting to put in a specific thing, but we're showing how we use this generic thing. And we just filled in the blanks, like, oh, this theoretical idea gets filled in with this thing for this case. Okay. Rather than just, oh, we want to work in a factory, we just hardwire a bunch of factory parts to work together.
2: OK, OK. And so, um, so what are the things, like, going into these equations? Like, I like mm-hmm. math, but when you say this, like, the connection between, like, machine learning mm-hmm. and an equation is really
6: abstract to me. No, I know? completely agree with you. Yeah. It's very abstract, and that's why I was... Uh Trying to say that um, like the idea of a checklist, um, it doesn't sound like math, but actually it's the whole idea behind um, basic logic and set theory. Okay. So it's just the idea like you have a set of things that you know are true, a set of things you know are false, and mm-hmm. a set of things you may not know about. Okay, so your equation is like, right, is this condition met? Like, right, exactly. Is, like is, So is, a condition is met, for example, if... All the items that are needed for it to be completed are in the known true list. Okay. Or in the known false list. Like maybe you wouldn't want to take a pen if it's in someone else, if it's not on the table.
2: Mm. Okay. So, yeah. So,
6: okay. you're sort of saying like this should be in the true, this should be in the false. If I don't mm-hmm. know something, clearly you don't want to gamble on it unless and that's where probability can come in is maybe you'll say, oh, well, if it's this highly likely to succeed, then you could do a greater than or less than. If the probability is this high with the things I don't know but I know the other things, then I'm willing to try it. If it's less than this and I'm not so uh, certain, maybe I don't want to gamble on so this So you choice. have
2: to kind of code in a decision making.
6: Exactly, and that's what we study no, is decision making. So that's our lab's main focus is like, when is the right time to make certain decisions? And how do we even know when we can do a decision? And of course, one of the biggest ones, especially when you do interaction is, you have to do it quickly. And you mm. can't make the best decision always. Like even we always sometimes are like, I got to do this. Yeah. And so figuring out that, um, we call it the anytime factor, or when is it good enough to make that decision based on what we know so far? Huh and that's our lab specialty.
2: Okay, and so that's something humans are pretty good at. Exactly. Making quick decisions, but
6: but mm-hmm. computers not as much. They not a, a lot
2: of, it's a lot of work going into you're that. You're
6: absolutely right, and I think the main reason is um, when people started this idea with artificial intelligence way back in the early days, the early idea was how do we make something that is like a human, and so they were looking at all these ideas of how do we make it as perfect, if not better. And so they were looking at this idea of like, oh, we need the best solution. So they were trying to compute exactly the right choice to make in all these cases and things like mm-hmm. that. But we've come to learn that, first of all, even humans don't really get the best answer all the time. Mm-hmm. And we've re- moved away from this idea. So it's important to emphasize artificial intelligence is no longer trying to make humans or replace humans. Yeah. But the main goal now is to actually make tools that can assist or even raise the abilities of people. Like, if you think about your smartphone, Siri is an artificial intelligent being, but it's in no way a human. But it's a tool that you can ask questions and get the information back from.
2: Hmm.
6: Yeah. And so that's been the big move in artificial intelligence now is trying to help people out. And that's why this interaction is so important. It's important to understand what the person's doing in order to interact properly. Because if you're going to be helping someone and you're going to be a good tool to make them do better, you really have to know what they're up to in the first place.
2: Right, yeah. Interesting. Um, so I recently
6: learned... On the topic of artificial intelligence, about this
2: concept of the singularity. Oh, okay. Do you not want to talk about that? No, I'm, I'm fine talking
6: about it. Um, this is this, this is one of those things that a lot of people always come to us because it's very popular in the media. Uh, okay. Um, and so people hear about singularity and a lot of these ideas, and they go, "What is up with this?" And yeah. I think, I think if you look at a lot of the people who are talking about it, um, so I will definitely say this, not being an expert or wanting to talk down anybody else, but. A lot of people who are discussing the singularity are people who are actually not necessarily people doing artificial intelligence research. Um, The idea actually did start from people who were writing science fiction originally. And, of course, you want to make cool stuff in science fiction and predict this future that sounds interesting or has all these nice properties to talk about the Mm what-ifs. But I can definitely say from the work that we have so far and where we're going, at the moment, it's very hard to believe that this thing will actually happen. Okay. Um, It's just... We are nowhere close to this sort of thing. But of course, it's hard to always say, because science is an amazing thing where random discoveries can happen at any point. So someone could one day find that one missing piece that suddenly this is doable. Well,
2: but, so to back up, because we didn't really talk about it, um, mm-hmm. the singularity is the concept that like humans and computers will merge, basically, right? Exactly. Is that like, artificial intelligence and humans will be, kind of become indistinguishable. Oh. Is, um, that, is that not really, or not so indistinguishable, guess, but, but that like human intelligence and computer intelligence will...
6: Right. Come so together. I think from what I've heard the idea of singularity is like this idea that the computers will become self aware like a person, if I've underst- mm. from what I've heard oh, okay. about it. Yeah. And so it's the idea that it has a singularness to it. It realizes I'm a thing and it's the idea that it gathers information, that also gather more information. Once it realizes it's an existing being, then it knows how to look for other information, it can start building itself up. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's like the idea that it's a single thing that knows all the things, and it can become the super intelligent being. So I feel like, so I definitely agree. It has this human idea, idea of merging with the humans, because it becomes human in a sense. Mm-hmm. But with where we currently are, it's hard to believe that that will be happening anytime within the next few generations at a minimum. But okay. it's one of those things where <laughs> so I So it doesn't would keep say, you up at night? No, I don't <laughs> think, I mean, it might keep some people up at night of how can we make this happen, perhaps, yeah, but- yeah. I would say it's not it does not seem feasible currently with where we are in our abilities. Okay.
2: Well, and is it desirable is another question. Well, that's but a great question. A question. question. That <laughs> as, as someone
6: who's not as exactly a philosopher, or an ethicist, or any of those things, I don't feel comfortable commenting on yeah, that no, part. Yeah, no, don't have to comment on that. Um,
2: okay, cool. Uh, so I just have one more uh, thing. So sure. uh, at the end of my show, I usually play a game called Guess That Acronym, where I have wow. my guests provide acronyms from their fields, because a lot of the sciences use a lot of acronyms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have my co-host guess it, but now I'm putting myself on the hot seat, and I'm asking mm-hmm. you... Give me an acronym from your field, and I'm gonna try to guess what it might mean. Oh. If there are any acronyms you I can mean, think of, there's that you lots use. of them.
6: I'm just trying to think. Like, do you mean like algorithms for like specific methods, or just like general subfields, or? It could any acronym that you think I might be able to guess. Although, okay, so yeah, one that sounds reasonable. Although to you. it's
2: fun, if or maybe that will spark an interesting conversation. Right. Okay. Right. So,
6: them. so something like AI, you wouldn't want to hear. because No, a I already obvious. know. I already All know right. that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess we'll go with. Um, So I'm guessing you've also heard of ML, perhaps? ML? Okay, well, if not, then Mm. we'll start with that one.
2: No, I don't know ML. Oh, actually, I think I do. Is it machine learning? It is machine learning. Cool. So is that a subset of AI? It
6: is a subset of AI. Uh, With The the way media talks say they claim that ML can do all of AI, but we can definitely say from being in decision-making where we're not using any of those techniques, and Mm. it's not very easy to do with ML at all. But there are some areas that are close. Like there is something that's like half decision-making and half ML.
2: Nice. Well, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank uh, is you there as anything well. else that didn't come up that you would like to
6: talk about? Um, that's all I can think of at the moment, unless you okay. have something else you want to discuss. No, I think that's good. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Great. Thank you.
2: Yeah. That was Rick Friedman from the Computer Science Department. Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura. I've been joined in the studio uh, with. Adrian Lamb and Raquel
1: Bryant. I think, Adrian, you want to give one last plug for your website? Yeah, so uh, just wanted to say again uh, Timescavengers.blog. It's a website that me and my colleague Jen have for education outreach. And if anybody's interested in participating in our Meet the Scientist blog, you can write about yourself for the general public. You can email us at Timescavengers at You
2: just listen to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst. The jingle you heard at the beginning of the show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Support for online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Lab in the Polymer Science Department. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, SoundCloud, or subscribe on iTunes. Please go and do that. Let us know what you like or what you don't like about the show, what you'd like to hear about in the future.